Welcome to episode 49 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. So this week, the guest host is another gentleman from the Horizon Labs Facebook and Twitter groups, and this is his first appearance on the podcast. Welcome aboard, Mark Smith. Hello, uh, thanks, Blaine. Yeah, this is my first ever podcast appearance, so you've got an exclusive. Welcome aboard. It's always great to have you. Thanks. I'm looking forward to uh, getting into this. Oh, yeah. And the this in question, for those following along at home, this is the week that we are discussing, well, it's actually a pretty unique combination of issues for this podcast. We are looking at the Matt Fraction run on Hawkeye. So the issues that made the list were Matt Fraction's entire run. So according to the list in the official publication, it's Hawkeye Volume 1 issues, or Volume 4, sorry, issues 1 through 21 and annual number 1. Since the list was published, the end actually extended from issue 21 to 22, since this was the only work still in progress when the list came out. Yeah, and still in progress probably for another year or so. It is. As those listening at home may have realized, if you're reading along, the final issue isn't due out until a couple weeks after this podcast is due out. So we will cover 1 through 21 and annual 1 as listed in, in the countdown documents, but the story itself clearly is meant to include issue 22. Yeah. Now, all of these were written by Matt Fraction. They were penciled primarily by David Aja, but also by Javier Polito, Francesco Francavilla, Steve Lieber, and Annie Wu, with ink by David Aja, Javier Polito, Francesco Francavilla, Jesse Hamm, and Annie Wu. Colors were generally done by Matt Hollingsworth, sometimes by Francesco Francavilla. Letters, I think all but one issue were Chris Eliopoulos, one by Clayton Cowles. The original editing team was associate editor Sana Amanat, associate editor Tom Brennan, editor Steve Wacker, and editor-in-chief Axel Alonzo. Now, Steve Wacker moved to Marvel's animation division on the West Coast by the time the series wrapped, so Anna Amanat was promoted to the full editor, the, the typical editor, with issue 17, and Devin Lewis came in as a new assistant editor. The cover dates start in October 2012 and are anticipated to finish in September 2015, and the release dates start with October 1st, 2012, and are anticipated to wrap up in well, about mid-July 2015. And this is rank 49 in the countdown. So with all the preliminaries out of the way, you know what, yeah, with that out of the way, we might as well start moving into a brief plot synopsis of the series to date. The first arc starts really with being introduced to Clint and his life sort of out of Avenger. It's more about him as Clint Barton than as Hawkeye. Uh, you get a very powerful first page of Clint falling backwards out of a window and shooting an arrow looking like he's about to save the day like in the Avengers movie when you see it and then what you see next which you don't usually see is him crashing into a car and being hospitalized for his injuries the first few pages sort of set up everything you need to know for the story it's Clint he's an Avenger he's not got superpowers or laser beams he can just shoot a bow and arrow he was raised as in a carnival and he sort of just worked his way up. And um, as you see Clint leaving the hospital, it sees you him going home in a taxi showing just how down to earth he is. As he gets home to a rundown apartment block, the story really starts with Clint bumping into what he describes as a tracksuit mafia, who are a load of Russian thugs who were harassing his house, his neighbours in his house in tenant. Soon find out that they they aren't as evil as you think because this is all legal. They're just extortion. They're raising the prices to try and get everyone out of the apartment. Yeah, this is one of those cases. It's like Stanley's original idea behind J. Jonah Jameson. He wanted yeah. to give Spider-Man a villain that the law couldn't touch. And it, it does quite a lot in the series. It blurs the line with right and wrong and lawful and unlawful. There's a lot of the bad guys do things by the book and the hero doesn't. And it does blur them lines quite a bit. And then in this issue, it's it's all out of order, like a Tarantino movie. You've got flipping between this going off and then Clint in a doctor's in a very Turner and Hooch style scene of 
him saying, save this dog, save this dog, while the tracksuit mafia are coming at him to get their own back. Because you find out later that he goes, he finds out where they are and goes to try and buy the building off them. And as everything in this series, it goes wrong very quickly and breaks into a fight in a back street casino. This is the first real bit of action you see when the the deal goes wrong and it's it's more of a bar fight than a superhero fight. There's cards being thrown to take out the bad guys and tables being thrown and punches and kicks, not big acrobatics and like long paced out fight scenes. Yeah, the whole thing is a very different structure. All all the issues actually have that nonlinear story structure that you're talking about. Yeah, it does work quite well. It, it it keeps you interested because I think if it was just time by time slot of it, you wouldn't get the big beats coming together at the end. I think it's it's really well paced and David Arjart, him and Matt Fraction seem to work so well on the timing together. It's a lot of little panels when it's fast and the big expanded panels to show the world. It's a work of art, I've always thought. Yeah, and it- it's a very different book. One of the things that I've learned about Matt Fraction through pretty much his whole career that I'm aware of is that he really likes to experiment with form. So he will take a different approach and do things in each story that he does in each comic that he hasn't seen people do on the comic book page before. And Yeah, and he's also he's very good at not doing the same story twice. It's from a superhero story to a different genre and not sticking in one. He, he he seems to really test his limits. Yeah. He doesn't like to get complacent. No. Everything he does, including, well, say what you will about fear itself, but if you listen to his word balloon interview, you know what he was going for and which parts of the mold he was trying to break. What, you know, a bunch of things he'd never seen done in an event before that he was trying to do in his event. Yeah. Well, fear itself was okay as a story arc, but bad as an event. It was the other people getting in that ruined it, I feel. Yeah, there's, I mean, we can go about Fear itself, as you say, it was okay, and I think that's probably the Matt Fraction work I've enjoyed the least. And it wasn't yeah. bad, it was just okay. Yeah. Typically, he does a lot better than just okay. Yeah, he is, a, he is sort of the name at the moment. Um, him and Kelly Sue are the, the power couple of comics at the moment. Back to the issue, this is when we're first introduced to the then-named Pizza Dog, who is um, one of the dogs owned by the Tracksuit Mafia, and... As this fight kicks out, Clint's all ready to run and show that he's not Captain America. He's not sort of fighting for all that's right. He's just fighting for himself at the moment. And he's ready to sort of turn and run. But his hero instincts kick in when the dog then is kicked into the road by its owners. And the switch is flipped. And that's it. He sort of kicks into action then and starts to take down the tracksuit mafia. That's, that's it for issue one. Issue two, the story carries on. You first introduced to Kate Bishop, who is sort of the unofficial Hawkeye from the Young Avengers run, and she took up his mantle when he was dead in Avengers Disassembled. Mm-hmm. It shows that they they become friends and sort of I think he even puts it as she's his ward and trying to chain her up. And you can see from the start there's quite a bit of chemistry between them. But both of them know that's the the worst thing that could possibly happen with, I think, Clint's background and love life history that comes up a lot in the series. And as they're talking, Clint's trying to explain to Kate that there's something going down with hobo signs. And if you look through the issues, there's all these markings of graffiti on buildings in the background that aren't that signpost until they're talking about it, but from issue one, they're there. And he's saying this is the the homeless community's way of saying, don't get out of here. There's there's something big coming on. There's some trouble up ahead. Um, so Kate and Clint go off to find out what is happening. And because Kate is in the well-to-do circles, she comes from a very rich background, they get an invite to a party that's run by the criminals of the Marvel Universe, from the Kingpin to, I think, the Owls there, and it's basically a who's who of mob bosses. Yeah, we're talking Owl, Kingpin, Hammerhead, Tombstone, Madame Mask is a, 
a huge contributor to this series and to that meeting. Yeah, and um, it, it it sets up that these tracksuit mafia or bros, as they that's what they seem to call each other, they are a part of this universe that you've not seen before, but they are serious enough to be in with the big boys. At the party, they bump into the circus of crime that are performing, and you soon find out that they're trying to steal from the villains, and Clint's smart enough and knows the underground enough to know that he can escape from the... I don't know. What's the leader, the hypnotising guy's name? Ringmaster. Ringmaster, that's it. Yeah. He sees this coming, so him and Kate get out of dodge before all the crime bosses are hypnotised to basically let the circus of crime rob them. As that goes on, there's a fight, and you soon find out that there is something big going on, and even the circus of crime are saying, well, something's coming, and we're trying to get out of dodge before it happens. Everyone knows there's something big's going to go down. That proves that Clint was right about the hobo signs and what's going on. That's actually a running thread through this series, is that he can only... He can see what must be done, and he's guided by his own morals. He doesn't necessarily see the best way to go about what has to be done. No, he's he makes a lot of mistakes. I think a lot of times, him and Kate in this, they're saying to themselves, I shouldn't do this or I should do that. But the personal flaws stop them from doing it. Either pride or whatever stops them from doing what they should do. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So after that, the next issue, we start with Clint and Kate talking about the most surreal of Clint's arsenal, which is his trick arrows, and going through them all from putty arrows to explosive arrows to boomerang arrows, which which all plays a part in the later scenes. This is the sort of, in the series, it could be, it doesn't have to be in the Marvel Universe, this series. This is the only thing that's linking it to that, the more surreal side. It's as if he doesn't have to be Hawkeye. This could have been a independent series and you could have just had a guy going up against these mobs this is the one thing that sort of brings it back to the marvel universe and makes it a hawkeye story rather than just arrow dude or something like that yeah that and some of the guest cast that show up later they're never a major part of it they are just that they are just a guest cast yeah and it's when they do show up they're rarely in costume i mean i think clint himself only appears in costume for I think maybe three or four panels in the early in issue six. Yeah, he sort of, they design a new sort of street costume for him. He's wearing Hawkeye sort of branded clothes. Everything's got arrows or targets on it, but he's not, he's not running out in spandex to fight crime. He's going down the shops to get some milk or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really not what you'd expect from your typical superhero. Because as you said, that, seem to be Matt Fraction's whole pitch for this show is what does Hawkeye do when he's not being an Avenger? Yeah, and his him being an Avenger, it's, they mention it, but he never calls on that. It's never, oh, let's call in the big guns. It's, I've got to deal with this myself. So after Kate and Clint are discussing the importance of trick arrows and what they can do, Clint goes out to get tape for his arrows to mark them up, and he bumps into a mysterious red-headed woman in the shop and soon a deal goes down with him buying her red muscle car from outside and you soon learn that this mysterious redhead is linked to the Russian mafia the tracksuit mafia and him buying the car and having a bit of an adult relationships with this woman which causes a lot of problems down the line is linking in the problems with himself and the tracksuit mafia so after Clint and the lady that we later find out is called Penny are in bed together and suddenly the, the bros turn up and kick the door down and a, a fight scene and car chase which is beautifully paced ensues which has a very feel of the Italian job as the bros are in little Mini Cooper type cars chasing this muscle car to try and capture Clint and Penny. Yeah, this is... One of several moments in the course of the series where it looks like Fraction is paying homage to some of his favorite movies. Yeah, it's he does. There is a, so many, if not movie references, but movie feels like Hawkeye feels more like a James Bond without the upper class raisins. He's like a street level James Bond in it. It's secret agents and 
kicking ass and it, it did have a very sort of 70s 80s sort of movie feel to the whole series and his his personality yeah and it's all the way through like even the the la- most recently released issue is issue 21 the solicitation text for that is ever seen rio bravo check it out it's pretty good yeah right it doesn't say anything about the issue it's just yeah go check yeah. out that movie but i think when it got to that stage it didn't need anything it got to that much of a hype that people buy it anyway so they could have a bit of fun with the solicitations yeah, it has been. In the whole Marvel Now era, because this was one of the first Marvel Now titles before all new Marvel Now, it's been around since the first Marvel Now initiative, there seems to be an online debate about which is Marvel's, the best book Marvel is publishing at this time. Which book is that? I see most people saying Hawkeye, I think Mark Wade's Daredevil is the only one that gets mentioned on a regular basis, but it, you know, we certainly hear about this one more than that one. Yeah, it's a comic addressing the new generation of readers sort of the Tumblr generation and the digital comics generation of readers. I think this is their Spider-Man, like when McFarlane's Spider-Man came out, that was getting the beginning of this next generation. I think Hawkeye's doing the same. Yeah, I I could see it appealing to a lot of people who don't normally read comics because it's not, you know, about stopping the big alien threats. I mean, issue six, you know, one of the main concerns through it is how does he set up a DVR? Yeah, which is a great scene with a man who can make a suit of iron, a Iron Man suit, but is struggling to help someone set up a DVR. Yeah, and he's just like, why don't I just buy you all new stuff? And Huck is like, no, this stuff is good, as he's, you know, cutting wires off rather than take the time to untangle them. I think that is quite a sort of a symbolistic sort of thing of, of his life. It's, oh, this is my life, and it is a mess, but it's my mess to sort out it. This whole series seems to be, it's, this is my mess, and I'm going to fix it myself. Yeah, and that's true for both his thread and Kate Bishop's thread throughout, because we end up following both Hawkeyes, even when they're separated on completely different coasts, because there is, well, probably about halfway through, there's almost a falling out between them, and Kate decides to move out to LA to be her own kind of hero. Yeah. With many homages to the Rockford Files going on in that story arc. Yeah, so, um... So this first arc sort of finishes with Kate's coming to save the day at the end with one of Hawkeye's um, trick arrows, as it looks like she's let her arrow off just to go off into the distance. It comes back and hits the tracksuit mafia bro who's got them to gunpoint in the back of the head by coming back as it's the boomerang arrow. And that sort of wraps up the first introductory arc of the series and putting all the places, putting all the plays in place to carry on the series mm-hmm. and then we we start in the second arc which is titled the tape where clint is having a barbecue with his uh, house tenants and um grills who's uh mate he's one of the major background characters supporting cast and suddenly shield swoop in to take clint and say we've got a mission for you and they're saying the tape's been released and they don't discuss, they don't say straight away what the tape is, but you soon find out it's a video of Hawkeye killing a political leader from another country in a black ops operation. And there's lots of ramifications of an Avenger killing a foreign political party leader. And they, um, they have to send him to recover the fight, the tape, as it says that because it's a tape, it's something S.H.I.E.L.D. can't wipe from the databases or do remotely. It's something that someone's going to have to get feet on ground and recover it from this auction in the city of Mandrapur, which is the dark and gritty city of the Marvel Universe, the sort of the cesspit and where all the bad guys seem to be coming from at the moment. Yeah, it's the the home of Madame Mask and... Her organization as well. She's pretty much running the place. Yeah, and it's it seems to be one of the, the hot locations to use in the Marvel universes. I know it was used a lot in Secret Avengers and the current Avengers run. Oh no, sorry. The Tony Stark buys a big part of Mandrapur and tries to fix it up in his Kieran Gillen run, I think. So Kate and Clint go in to recover this tape from an auction going on with seems to have a lot of the same criminal bosses that were involved in the party with the Circus of Crime. 
and as with everything with Clint, it soon goes wrong. Clint gets caught straight away, and his bow and everything's taken off him, so it's just him, and he's in the custody of Madame Mask, who has him tied up, and he's there saying, I've, I've got the money, I want to buy this tape. And she's quite happily to take S.H.I.E.L.D.'s money, as well as any other criminals, to, to get hold of this tape with this information that I don't think anyone knows what the information is, but they know it's important. Yeah, they don't know until it's announced at the start of the auction yes. for it. So right? the auctioneer does say, you know, here's a tape of an Avenger assassinating, you know, this world leader. And it even says that they, the witnesses that had seen it had been killed to make sure that whoever buys it was the only person who knew this information. And it seems to be all going wrong. And the auction happens and Madame Mask wins the auction. But you soon find out that it's not Madame Mask and that Kate has captured and is now impersonating Madame Mask and is now in possession of the tape. So she soon gets caught out and Clint and Kate have to make a sort of last minute escape from hordes of evil henchmen. And they soon escape by jumping out of a window. As you later find out that as after they've recovered the tape, that the tape was just a plant to sort of source out a mole in S.H.I.E.L.D. and that this was the only way that they could be sure who the mole was as there was tapes of different Avengers and leaked out into S.H.I.E.L.D.'s information that this tape exists of, I think there was Clint and Captain America and some other Avengers. I think that's it for that arc. Yeah, it's... It's almost like S.H.I.E.L.D. did the old movie maker or TV franchise trick like they've done with Star Trek where they've made minor differences to everyone's scripts so that they can track any leaks. Right? Yeah. That's how they knew that it was actually Gene Roddenberry himself who leaked the script to Star Trek 2 out to fans because there's, you know, tweaks in the dialogue and whatnot. Or, you know, movies now will have little watermarks on some of the images that and each print was unique when they're using the print film so that they could track down who is leaking these films if they're being leaked at all. Yeah, and it's sort of a lot of shows have when there's the big murderer in a series in it's like over here, it's a lot of soap operas, they have a lot of scripts and only they'll say, right, learn all these scripts, but so the cast can't leak out the information of who the killer is. They'll say on the day, this is the script we're going for, just to, to help to stop things from the inside getting corrupt. So, yeah, this was very much in that style. And given how much of a film geek Matt Fraction is, it wouldn't surprise me if those stories were the inspiration for the story arc. Yeah, he, he, you can tell he sat down and watched a lot of old movies while writing these. A lot of things um, came trickled through into the story. So um, we're coming up to the point now where this is where I started reading the series and sort of heard the name as it was banded around the internet a lot with the Hurricane Sandy issue. So the next arc of the story is the red-headed lady, Penny, comes back from abroad to clear up the mess that she was escaping from in the last time we saw her. Um, she basically walks into the Avengers mansion asking for Clint and kisses him, but it isn't the best timing because he's playing cards with his ex-wife, his ex-partner, and his current girlfriend. Against all sort of sane reasoning Clint decides to help her out and they take on the tracksuit mafia and to recover a safe that's got something vital that we're not told what yet is the sort of the, the next three issues all run together with the different sides of the women in Clint's life chasing up this lady with the red hair and Clint getting this safe back it blurs the lines again of Clint doing the wrong things for the right reason and he even ends up getting arrested which is it's the theme quite one of the big themes of the story of he's just doing stupidly wrong things but his heart's in the right place mm -hmm. yeah that is definitely a recurring theme through all of these issues yeah and because of the the beef now that Clint and the tracksuit mafia have you get the first appearance of the clown assassin I can't for the life of me remember his name because he's he's not really mentioned by name. He's quite a mysterious figure. Yeah, it's Kazimierz Kazimierzak. I'm glad you tried that, not me. Yeah, it's uh, K A Z I M I E R Z. 
K-A-Z-I-M-I-E-R-C-Z-A-K. Yeah. And there's there's quite a lot of parallels between Clint and the clan assassin, with them being brought up in a circus environment, but the clan assassin's life took a dark twist and he's now just killing for money and he quite he says to Kate he enjoys what he's doing because they they meet each other not knowing who each other is. And I think she falls for him again, which shows that she's got very poor taste in looking what men she likes. Yeah, that's a that's been a running theme with Kate right back to Young Avengers. Yeah. <laughs> they do quite well of Kate being the same character still from Young Avengers to now. It's sometimes you have a character in a different series and they're just totally written as a different person. But no, yeah, this fraction has a very good ear for character work and pulling that through. And that's, I mean, to kind of spoil the significance and why we think it's on the list, the character work is what makes this series. Yeah, definitely. It, it's not like a big event or anything. It's 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 more of a soap opera than an adventure story. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, even the, the quasi one-shot. I mean, you could call it a one-shot because it's the standalone that the story arc leads into, but it the the single issue, it's actually the only one that was single out for the Omnibus, issue 11, is the infamous Pizza Dog issue. Yeah, and that's that's, I think, what got everyone talking about Hawkeye. It was just a crazy idea and they pulled it off. Mm-hmm. So This is back to the experimentation with form that we discussed earlier for Fraction. Yeah, and um, we'll go into that a bit. Um, the Pizza Dog issue is all from Pizza Dog or Lucky's sort of side of the next, I think issues 11 to 13 are all concurrent with each other, but from different people's views and you get a lot from a lot of pieces of the puzzle when they're all read together. Yeah. But it was, I know I um, talked to Matt Fraction at convention about it and he said that was the hardest, what it was quite hard to do to figure out how a dog would see things and how to put that on the page. They do quite well with the sort of infographics, like a, almost like an Ikea catalog, a little picture (laughs) just to give you an idea of what they're thinking. Yeah. And it's, I'm sure it was difficult, but to give them credit, they did it. It's hard enough that I would expect a lot of writers to say, nope, not doing it. I'm just going to tell the story the way yeah. I used to. But they do, They both him and it's usually when he's with uh, David Arjo, they do try and push it in one way. They try and do something different. And they, that's what makes them such a good teaming. It's quite similar that um, Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey, when a, a writer and an artist have a good relationship, they can do things differently because there's not a, miscommunication between them yeah it is and we should actually probably note that this creative team of aja and fraction they have worked together before on the immortal iron fist series and i think that's a lot of why marvel's willing to take a shot at this one because immortal iron fist never sold as well as hawkeye but the critical reviews were just as rave yeah i think this is, well the same with this as um, iron fist and hawkeye they're not characters that someone will pick up the book through the character's name they're not uh an Iron Man or a Captain America that people will read because it's them. It's one of the B, more B-list characters who people, there's not many who it's their go-to favorite character. Yeah. That also seems to be a, a running joke in this one too. I mean, there's a number of times when Hawkeye says, I'm an Avenger. Oh, are you Iron Fist? Why do people keep asking me that? Why do they keep thinking that? And it's just, I swear that's a, a callback to the fact that that's the character these guys previously worked on. Yeah. So the, the main thing that's happening in these three issues is all about the mystery of the assassin and how he got in to kill Gil as he's assassinated just after he's talking to Hawkeye to tell him to sort his life out. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the start of the big split in the book because this is the part where uh, Kate Bishop and Clint separate the ways and she goes off and becomes a hero for hire in LA. Yeah, again with the Rockford Files references and that whole private investigator yeah. thing. But a private investigator that's a superhero. Well, sort of superhero. Yeah, that's her mindset. And it's but she's a superhero in the sense that yeah, she puts on a costume on occasion. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Because there's a quite a few times where she says, I'm an Avenger, sort of, or I'm an Avenger and people question it. Yeah. And she's like, okay, fine, young Avengers, but still. Yeah. So if we go into Kate's arc, because at this point it's swapping between Kate and Clint's story to help with getting the issues out in time. Basically, Kate leaves for LA. On the way there, 
Madame Mask interferes into her plans again and steals her car and all that stuff and planning her revenge on Kate. And Kate ends up having to earn a living by cat-sitting in old couple's caravan while taking on hero for hire cases. And they're not the the most glamorous of cases, but they all they all link into back to the same set of criminals and the um as Clint's got his bros, the tracksuit mafia to fight, Kate keeps finding herself coming up against a team of vicious bellboys. Yeah. Which again are atypical villains, but they really work well in this context. And that's it helps that both of these leads are just very skilled humans. So the threats against them are very, very real. Yeah, it's no it's no death rays, it's fist fights and being shot at. Mm-hmm. As you, the average thug on the street is not going to feel like a threat to Thor or Iron Man or even Captain America, but they can very well be a threat to these two. Yeah. So as I said before, um, you find out that a lot of these mysterious uh, cases that she takes on and she bumps into a guy that she knows as Cat Food Man, who you find out is Harold Haroldson, I think it is. Yeah, Harold H. Harold, and the middle name, middle initial H also stands for Harold. Yeah, and um, another support cast member is the police sergeant, who is um, very much like something from a police cop movie, the angry sergeant who shouts, and but ultimately you think got a soft spot and is trying to help. Yeah, yeah, again, very much like the Rockford Files for yeah. Detective Caudle there. I don't, did you... Get the Rockford Files in the UK. Are you familiar with that one? Or? Uh, we may have got it, but I'm not familiar with it, no. Okay. James Garner is a private investigator who lives in a trailer on the beach. And D- Joe Santos played Dennis Becker, who's the... He's the officer with virtually identical personality to Detective Caldwell here. Okay. That would help Rockford out once in a while. It's it's well worth seeing. It lasted six seasons, and I think Garner won the Emmy for five of them. Okay. Yeah, it's one of the few shows that it actually ended because of Jim Garner's health and not because of a lack of ratings. Which is always, it's never good for a good show to um, die off and have a slow death and have them to be sort of cancelled because it's either just poor or no one's interested anymore. Yeah, yeah. Just it would have been nice if they saw the incoming and did a proper finale, but hey, he got a whole bunch of made-for-TV movies in the 90s, so. Cool, I'll have to put that onto my to-watch list. Anyway, back to this series. Yeah, back to this series. Uh, so the all these small mysteries come up, ranging from a flower shop being burnt down that's that is in the process of growing. I think it's a lily for one of Kate's neighbors on the trailer park, and she takes the case. Yeah, the orchids. Oh, the orchids. That was it. Yeah, and one of the cases is helping a old musician who was famous in the eighties, I think, or seventies or eighties to get his music back from his brother who was going to release it and he didn't want it releasing and she gets involved in a drug dealer and she finds out that it's harder than she it's harder than she thinks to get a criminal arrested rather than just going to the police saying this guy's doing bad she needs to find evidence yeah i think in the end the thing that actually gets the um drug dealer put away is she takes a selfie after she he runs her down and he gets done for possessing a weapon because he's got all the paperwork for to have marijuana for medical reasons. Yeah. Yeah, it is it's nicely done and it's I thought it was a nice commentary on a lot of the previous superhero comics and detective shows, you know, kinda like that moment in Superman Returns when Lex Luthor is talking about how, you know, Superman disappeared and his methods lack things like due process. Right. There's a question of how long would the superhero's methods keep criminals in jail? And the answer we get right here is not very long. No, you can you can catch them burgling, uh, robbing a bank and stop them midway, but you then haven't got any evidence that they actually robbed anything. It's n- nothing's going to stick with a lawyer when it's you've thrown them through a wall or something like that. It's it's not very real world. The lawyers will just tear them apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so as Kate gets involved in all these things. They all end up linking back to Madame Mask, who is getting her revenge for being embarrassed by Kate and back in issue five or six. Yeah, both of them. It was the end of issue five is the reveal that Kate had taken her place. Yeah, that's in the in the tape arc. And during all these investigations, Kate finds out that 
her family are involved in Madame Mask and the Crime Lords, which she doesn't take too well. No, not at all. Because it, it turns out that Madame Mask has been basically using proprietary or stolen LMD technology to get people eternal life by just allowing them to transfer their consciousness into younger bodies, which is... It's a nice reference back to Madame Mask's story with Iron Man way back in Kurt Busiek's Avengers run and prior to that, where she did have a way to transfer her consciousness from one body to another. And she even uses that to torture Harold H. Harold to sort of keep keep him in the city and keep putting him back in a new body and killing him. Mm-hmm. But Kate's arc sort of finishes with Kate getting this information about her dad and finding out that something big's going to go down with Clint and her driving home from LA to say, and ringing her dad saying, I know what you've done. I'm coming for you, but I'm helping my friend out first. Yeah, we we do get that. So it's it's really setting up for a spin-off series about Kate Bishop. Because with only one issue left in that part where their family is unresolved, the one issue we have left is not likely to deal with that. We'll no. get to that in more detail when we synopsize 21. But at the end of 21, you can clearly feel this is building towards an ending. But also reading it, I had the feel like, is one issue going to be enough to give us the ending for this? There's Yeah, there's a lot that needs clean, clearing up. But I think everything is coming to... It does seem that everything's coming back to a point with the tracksuit mafia, the house in, and the safe. Seems that's going to be the the final scene. I would think so, because as this as Kate's been doing this in L.A., we've had uh, Clint Barton, who's recently reunited with his brother Barney Barton, as they're going through and they're dealing with the tracksuit mafia, and they get beaten pretty badly to the point that in another one of those experimental issues. Issue 19 is a silent issue, and not like the Nuff Said month or like the classic Snake Eyes issues of G.I. Joe. This is an issue from Clint Barton's perspective, as he's gone almost completely deaf. He's been partially deaf at the comics for a long time, but this issue, we quite literally see empty speech balloons. There's some nonsensical stuff to represent bad lip reading, and there's a lot that's done in legitimate American Sign Language. I don't know American Sign Language, but I do know that, yeah, they researched it. They figured out how do you represent these things, and they reproduce those hand positions. Yeah, like the uh, like the pizza dog issue, there's a lot of thought to be of a uh, fraction putting himself in them shoes and, like you said, catching the odd word and misreading lips to, to figure out what a word is. And um, he really gets it from that side, sort of. You see the isolation that Clint's feeling from being deaf for... The second time now, because you find out that he was at least partially deaf when he was a kid, when he was living with mm-hmm. his parents or foster parents. I don't remember if it's foster or parents. Yeah, I think the accident happened with his biological parents. But this is flashbacks to both. Cause... And there, there is a lot of flashbacks to Clint and Barney growing up and showing how through having abusive parents that Barney toughens up Clint by teaching him how to fight and teaching him how to take a punch and things like that to, to get him to sort of be in a more vicious world that they're in. Mm-hmm. In these issues with um, Clint and Barney trying to protect the apartment block, there is a quite a few almost uh, Home Alone scenes with the house tenants protecting themselves against the tracksuit mafia. Yeah, and often quite effectively. I mean, The Home Alone comparison is very apt. And we also get a hint of how the clown got into the building to kill Grills in the first place. Yeah, which is really good because as you, as I've reread through these issues, the, the signs are there from the pizza dog issue. There's a big sign saying how they got in, but you, you never quite piece that together. It's one of those reveals that I like in comics where it surprises you when you hit it. But if you go back and reread it, you say, oh, yeah, it didn't surprise me because it came out of nowhere and there's no supporting evidence. It surprised me because... I was staring at the evidence and seeing it on the pages, but didn't realize what I was looking at because the clues were not in the context. They were very subtle from people smelling the same to just bits of text in the background. Yeah. And they they do quite well with um, background messages because in one of the issues, Barney is doing a crossword and asking for help and they're all words to do with the situation that they're going through at the moment. It all ties in, and it's it's one of those series where when you read it, you firmly believe that, yeah, this isn't ending because of, you know, Fraction doing less work for Marvel, and it's not ending because of other things. It's ending because this story arc, or this entire series, had a plan beginning, middle, and end. 
and the end is just coming. And now is the time it was due. Yeah, because um, issue 21 is really the clearing things up before the final fight, sort of. Clint um, talks to Barney and a lot of the money that he got for the apartment was what he stole from Barney during the, I think, during the Dark Avengers arc, which I didn't read, so I, I wasn't too sure. But it's it's not one of them things you need. It, it's just, a, I stole this money off you and you can have it back, but don't leave me. We need to sort this out, sort of a, a talk. And I think in, in this issue as well, Clint and Spider-Woman clear things up and he sort of says, I did what I did because I was scared of a serious relationship. So I, I messed it up on purpose. Yeah. And then as this issue goes on, it's, like I said, a Home Alone sort of assault on the building with Gil's dad getting his revenge by throwing barbecue coals on the invading tracksuit mafia and stairs being barricaded with chairs. But as always, it, it doesn't work out for him. And Clint gets dragged to the roof and beaten while Barney's being questioned about the safe. And at the end of the issue, the big reveal is you see Pizza Dog back in the apartment block with an arrow in his mouth. And we've got to wait to see what what happens in issue 22 to find out, obviously, Kate's been involved and what the resolution is going to be. Yeah, it is. It's a very interesting setup. I really wish that they'd kept even closer to the original publication schedule so we could have the finale to discuss because when I mean, issue 20 came out September 2014, 21 was postponed till February. I mean, issue 20 came out, I believe, the, the same week or the week prior to the printed copy of the 75 Greatest Marvels list. And I know Fraction has said that issue 22 is not out yet because he's not had time to finish it yet rather than it being an art issue from David Arjar's side because I know his side took a a long time to perfect the art in it. It did, but at least David Aja, he was willing to, to sort of step back and let someone else step in for the Kate issues. So that's where the Annie Wu art comes in. That's where the Francesco Francovilla art comes in. And, and and that does work really well, having Annie Wu taking the Kate side, because you do get, with the different style of, style of art, it is more colourful and vibrant to show the change of scenery, whereas when you're in New York with Clint, it is dark and gritty. And the the colourist in the series has really adds a lot of feeling to the book with quite a limited palette on both sides. Yeah, and it's which palette and which limits that are chosen are part of what gives it such a great feel. Like there's The thing with colourists is that the only way to notice them is if they're either bad at their job or really, really good at their job. If they're somewhere in the middle, you just don't even see what they do. Yeah, sort of the same as the editors. It's only if they're doing the job right, you shouldn't know they're there. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Stephen Wacker on this book when it launched. I mean, Stephen Wacker's... If you go back to when Stephen Wacker was still active in Marvel Editorial and you look at the top 10 sales or all of Marvel's top sales, Wacker's entire list shows up in the, the top quarter. Like you, know, you get through all of Stephen Wacker's books when you still had, I think, maybe three or four books by anyone else on that list. So he was editor on this, he was editor on Daredevil, he was editor on Superior Spider-Man, right? He seemed to find the creative teams who were looking to take risks or willing to take risks. Yeah. While we're talking about colouring, the covers, a work of art, sort of, they, um, I think it's one of the few series where I don't know if there was any ever any variant-ish covers, but they seemed like variant covers. They all linked together, they all had running motifs between them and the same limited sort of purple black and white palette or uh, red and sort of a burnt orangey color to them all yeah there were a few variant covers there were seven versions of issue one but part of that was just that was a month where you had spider-man variant editions the 50th anniversary spider-man so that variant cover was spider-man facing a bunch of doc ox and that's it or you know an eddie granov cover but most of the them were just some sort of tweak on the colors so the second, third, and fourth printings of issue one were just rotations on the color palette or reversal of colors. Issue two was similar. It was zooming in or adjusting the color palette to put characters in silhouette. Yeah, it's the same with issues four, had three variants, for, but that was a lot of what they were doing is just changing color palettes. For example, the regular cover and the original cover for issue seven is a cityscape with night and day on the sides and a red splash around the sun in the sky. The variant 
is just a purple splash instead of red, right? Issue eight is the same color in red or purple. Issue nine, again, red or purple. That's the most common variation. Issue 10 had a mini Armors of Iron Man variant cover. So again, unrelated to the content. It's about people buying the themed covers. And then, like I said, there's, as well as the colors on the covers, there's a lot of curving shapes with the concentric circles for the targets and the, yeah, uh, sort of uh, beehive hexagons on a lot of the issue covers as well. And like you said, a lot, like, especially the cover for 21 does seem like a movie poster for a gritty cop movie. It does, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot that definitely seem to work. And some of them, like, 18 and 19 are connected covers. And that, that's something that happens quite frequently here. I mean, the only one I know of that had actually related art in a completely different variant cover, uh, the variant f- covers for issue 15 were Lego versions of the covers to issue 2. So they took the cover to issue 2 and redrew it with Hawkeye and his bow and arrow as though they were Lego figures. Yeah, and um, a lot of the, unlike most comics nowadays, they did have a, a feel of what was happening inside to the covers. They were They were linked. It wasn't just to be a pretty picture. Yeah. And that's not to say that these aren't pretty pictures, but yeah, that, that's a lot of them. If you go back to, say, the Eddie Granov's covers before he took over as the interior artist on Iron Man back in the, the Best Defense arc, that was the first time in a long time that the covers of Iron Man were even thematically related to the interiors. A lot of times it's just, give me a good hero pose. Give me something you could put up as a poster to grab people's eyes and make them want what's inside. Here they've done that. Like you said, they could all be movie posters, and yet they're related to what's inside. Yeah, which... Um... Many comics didn't, like you said, for a long time. It was get a picture to sell this to someone, even though that might not have anything to do with actually what's happening in it. Mm-hmm. I think with that, we've really covered the plot synopsis and our stories of how we, we each read this. I mean, if we want to look at the impact that this had on the on the industry, on Marvel continuity, I mean, this was one of the first issues in the all-new, or that the original Marvel Now launch, and it seemed to open the door to a lot more experimental titles like Superior Foes of Spider-Man, and some of these, it, it convinced Marvel that, hey, it's worth taking risks on something very different. Yeah, like you said, with um, Superior Foes and a bit more now with like Howard the Duck and things like that, Marvel are letting creators play with not the main characters, but Marvel ca- like the, the more B-list Marvel characters. They're letting them play and experiment with what they're doing. And I think it's give them a shot. If it works, we'll carry on. If it doesn't, it's just a short run of a series. And it also, um, I think it it made Marvel look at more of how Image running series and things like that and maybe taking note from why they're getting popular at the moment. Yeah, a lot of it is just, it allowed Marvel to expand the variety of publications because it proved that the market is willing to support that. And like I said earlier, I think it it is because it's there is a new generation of readers at the moment. It's the the digital readers, the Tumblr readers, and things get spread. It's not previews and things like that that are spreading the word to comics now. It this got a lot of talk on the internet and podcasts. It wasn't it wasn't the main comic sites pushing it. It was people talking about it in word of mouth. Yeah, and it also wasn't because of some crossovers. I mean, I will openly admit my first exposure to Deadpool was when I decided to buy everything that related to Civil War. And that's how I first read Deadpool in an issue of Cable and Deadpool. Eyes weren't on this because it was tying into the rest of the Marvel Universe. This is very easily a good comic to hand someone who knows these characters strictly from the movies. You hand them this, having if you've seen Age of Ultron, you might wonder why you know Hawkeye doesn't seem to be married in here and get confused over who his ex-wife is because that relationship between him and Bobby Morris does not exist in the Avengers movies or in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but if you go in knowing that, yeah, some of the details of the movies and the comics are different, you could follow everything that's going on here. This could be your first Marvel comic, and it will make sense to you in large degree. Yeah, because, yeah, the um, it's not necessarily a Hawkeye that's in past comics. It's It's a character that you feel for, and it could have been released outside of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, it could very well have been. You could take some of the names now especially when you're looking at the criminals that are involved and, you know, his friends as the Avengers, you'd have to change some details. But the amount of rewriting you would need to do to take this and make it an image book with completely new characters is less than it probably took to 
take the Avengers Justice League crossover issues and turn them into Squadron Supreme. Yeah. Right, they they stand enough on their own. I mean, sure, Spider-Woman shows up, but she's not using her powers. Bobby Moore shows up. All you need to know is, yeah, there's a team of heroes out there he's a part of. Which could have quite easily been part of a spy agency he was in or something like that. Yeah, it's it wouldn't take much to turn these into agents of checkmate over at DC. Yeah. Um the other the other big sort of impact this has had on um other comics is his his look and personality has crossed over into other comics. As um I always thought from any Hawkeye I read in the past, he seemed to be the cocky I've got no powers, but I'm making it work sort of thing. Quite a lot like um, Robert Downey Jr. plays Tony Stark in the movies. Yeah, in many of his appearances. It it seems to be either that or almost like a midlife crisis where he's very down on himself when he originally became Goliath, back when the Avengers didn't have any powerhouses in the, the late 60s. But I'm sure even Clint Barton would want to forget about that costume back then. Yeah. Yeah, listeners will hear more about that when we discuss the Kree Scroll War, I'm sure. And the other thing is, it's, like I said, it's the internet generation they've taken on this, so anyone go to a convention, alongside the uh, plethora of Deadpools you'll see, I can guarantee there'll be someone in a Hawkeye t-shirt with the plasters over his nose from the first few issues walking around. Yeah, it's one of those ones that it's grabbed the readership, because you you don't need to have read anything else to pick it up and enjoy it, and it's really easy to enjoy because it's just so well done. It's not structured like any other comic I've read. It's got a lot more character work than any other comic I read, even though it's got a lot of plot in it as well, some of which you're seeing from multiple angles, from multiple character perspectives. This has all the experimentation of an arthouse comic set in a superhero world with superhero characters, and it really works. Yeah, it's, um, but it's it's more about the character and what the feeling, it's not about, it's, it's not a superhero comic. Yeah, as we said, I think he's in the costume for maybe four panels grand total. And that's just right at in issue six for part of one page. We've got some very good art, even though there is one of the shortcuts I've seen in digital artwork that irritates me. I found it most notable in issue eight. It's something that was showing up in the Alex Malieve Daredevil as well. I don't know if you, you noticed it, Mark, but one of the nice things about digital art is that you can put textures on clothing so people aren't just wearing you know a solid red shirt or a solid blue shirt. You can actually put patterns on them. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. So they don't, the pattern doesn't go, the pattern's flat, it's not curving around the body, sort of in clothes, yeah. Exactly, that's, yeah, so if, you know, if J. Jonah Jameson's wearing a plaid shirt and he lifts his arm up, the pattern moves across the surface of the shirt to stay aligned with what's on his chest, even though it should bend. Same with Cherry in her dress, she's got some squares on her dress, and when she leans over, they should look like diamonds or rhombi on the page and they're still vertical vertically oriented squares it just it really looks like someone's gone fill this box with this pattern so i look forward to the days when you know 3d fills like eddie granov used for his iron man extrabus arc are more commonplace so that when characters bend the patterns can bend with them but to me it's the art looks great if not for that i would not have known that this was digitally produced art for all i know that's the only part that's digitally produced art i just i don't care if you're using pencils or digital i care about the finished product and this finished product shows a particular artifact that can only come from that specific medium. Yeah, because um, even in that, that same issue, I think that's when Annie Wu first uh, starts working on the for the series. And she's got a lot of, in between the issue, you've got the old romance comic-ish covers. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least old style, right? They're not reprinting other romance comics. They are taking the covers of romance comics or that that style and making new ones to put inside this issue yeah and that um it works quite well with like you said from going from that the digital sort of artwork to that it's it stands out a lot more yeah it does it the styles clearly don't mesh all that well but i mean frankly that's probably that and the publication schedules are the only nits i can pick with this one yeah i think um i think it's a series where if it, it came out in one short run, it would have had a lot more critical acclaim. Like if they'd said, right, we weren't prepared for this, we'll take a six-month break and then we'll finish the story. I think, me personally, I think I would have took that better than a bit of hashing around the story, which they, they did well to get it to keep coming out. But I do feel it's detracted from 
the comic book. It has. And my concern with that is that Matt Fraction has a history of making monthly schedules with heavy loads. He was doing Invincible Iron Man for more than an issue a month. He's done a number of titles and had no problems keeping the schedule. It's only since his Sex Criminals book over at Image hit it big that he's had a hard time keeping Marvel schedules. So to me, it feels less like, oh, we weren't expecting this success, and more like, oh, I wasn't expecting Sex Criminals to be so successful and so profitable for me on a personal basis, because Image deals, he'd get a bigger chunk of a pie that's just as big. It feels like, to me, almost like Fraction has chosen to sideline this title to focus on that one. And now with his um, his TV deals as well, that's only going to get worse. Yeah, well, he's only got the one issue left for this series, and it wouldn't surprise me if there's going to be quite some time before we see him back on a Marvel book, possibly when Sex Criminals finishes its run. Yeah, but um, hopefully he does come back and we get more series, because they are always interesting, even how different each series is. Yeah, like I said, by and large, he's a good writer. As far as I can tell, the weakest thing he's ever put out is Fear Itself, and that's, it's not a terribly thrilling event, but it's not terrible either. Right, it's not a bad book. It just didn't live up to the height and expectations of a tentpole event. Yeah. So, quite frankly, I found less enjoyable events did make the seventy-five <laughs> countdown, but we'll get to those later. So now for the portion of the podcast that I have so shamelessly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, which we should all be listening to because they're doing great stuff. Uh, at the time this is released, they should be just starting season three of Next Generation in their episode by episode and movie by movie walkthrough of every Star Trek a live-action or animated incarnation ever on TV and in film. We look at these stories to see if there's any deeper meanings, so any messages, morals, or meanings that we can take out of this that are coming through. And I don't know, this isn't one of those comics that feels like like it's being created specifically to get a message across, but I think there are morals and meanings we can take out, because a lot of this seems to be about knowing your limits and knowing when to ask for help. Clint is trying to do too much on his own, and that's part of what's blending him in so much trouble. Yeah, I think you get, um, I know we didn't talk about this issue much, was the Chris Eliopoulos, the super winter friend issue, which is basically paralleling what Clint's going through and saying, you can't do everything on your own, you need help. Yeah, yeah, the issue was, there, there's an earlier issue when the neighbors come over to his place to watch their favorite Christmas special. And then that is, issue 20 is the flashback, and Clint sleeps through the Christmas special, and this is what he imagines, but that really is what happens. And it's, there's characters in there that are analogs to himself and Pizza Doggo and they try to do it alone, they fail. But when they pull all their friends together, they succeed. Yes. And that's what we're seeing in issue 21 is instead of fighting off the tracksuit mafia on his own, which he was trying to do and actually getting in trouble with local police for threatening people, if they looked even a little bit wonky, this time he's got everyone in the building pulled together and working as a team. Same thing with Kate Bishop when she was trying to solve things on her own as a private investigator didn't work. But when she brought in the help of Cat Food Man or her neighbors, she was quite successful. That's the the main message I get out of this is don't bite off more than you can chew. It's okay to ask for help when you need it. Yeah, I don't know if you have anything else that you wanted to, to add to that, if there's something else that you saw in here. The, the only other thing with that was a lot of the time they are questioning their own voice. They're saying to themselves, I need to, I need to get help. I need to get help. And they know they're over the head, but they're not listening to the the inner thoughts, because I think they've got a lot of um, self-doubt about themselves. Yeah, there's a lot of this where they're almost afraid of being judged if other people get brought into the situation and see what they've done so far. And another sort of running theme of the story is about right and wrong and blurring the lines of when you should do what. A lot of things that Clint does are legal and get him arrested, but he's doing them for what he thinks right. And when you see the Trexit Mafia meeting up to discuss about getting this the building back, they talk about he doesn't legally own the building. He, he chased off a guy and threw money at him. So technically, Clinton are wrong and they can go back and take that building. And if they call the police, it's Clinton that's in the wrong. The Trexit Mafia are just taking their building back from technically a squatter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. So it... I'm really interested to see how this pulls together in, in issue 22. And that's limiting our conversation on this to some degree, because you can't always tell what the message or moral is until it all gets wrapped up. And that's I think that's one of the reasons that this is the only story that was in the works when the list got published that made the list. It was ongoing when the voting happened. And if we want to talk about it, I think that's 
the reason it landed on this list is because it is so well done. It doesn't look like it's going to have a major impact on continuity. The messages that we have, like the, you know, it's okay to ask for help deal, that's there, but I don't think that is alone is going to be what pushes it to the top of the list because there's any number of team books out there where you could find issues that do the same thing, right? It's, this is on the list because it's just really, really well done. Yeah, I think um, another factor of it is when the list was taken, the poll was taken and how it was taken. I think it was mainly an internet. I don't know if you could write in and give your votes, but I think a lot of the the fans of the series were the ones who'd be on the computer and voting for it. And because it was popular at the time, I think if, if you did a top 75 story, a uh, top 75 list every few years, it would it does deserve to be on there somewhere, but I think it would slowly slip down, down and down, and the classic stories sort of come above this. Yeah, this could turn out like, say, the the Chris Priest Black Panther, where years later people still say, oh, those issues were so good. But if you're just reading what Marvel's printing now, there's no compelling reason to go back and find it because it's not being referenced by what's out there. So, I mean, Chris Priest's Black Panther, I've never spoken to anyone who's read those issues and didn't enjoy them. That's why they're on my to-read list, but I admit I haven't gotten there yet. And yet that didn't make the top 75. No, it's it's not one that you'd come across naturally in going through the history of the comics without it being put forward to you. Yeah, it's one that you pick up by reputation from talking to other readers. If if you get if you don't read any comic forums or listen to podcasts, then you're not hearing this anyway. Who who are you if you're not listening to podcasts? Yeah, but if you're, you know, in that section of the population, especially the, the newer readers who are getting all their comics through Comixology or other digital and possibly less legal means, it's really hard to find pointers for what past comics you should read, especially in the days without the footnotes here. So Marvel Digital Unlimited would have some of the classics, but how do you choose? Because that's a 15,000 issue library if you don't know what the issues are. I could see a lot of people, if that's their first exposure, they'll read the massive quantities of Thor or Spider-Man or X-Men or whatever their favorite movie franchise is, right? What's going to point them to this Hawkeye series or the Black Panther series? It wouldn't surprise me if Black Panther by Chris Priest finally gets a little more visibility and, and gets spiked a bit more when the next movie comes out. Yeah, and yeah, the only chance this has got is if Hawkeye ever gets a solo movie, which is doubtful by the end of Age of Ultron. Yeah, it doesn't look like he's going to get a solo movie, but at least he's getting enough visibility in these recent movies that, you know, when people are done with your Thors and your Iron Mans or Caps, they might come back to this one, especially when they notice, oh, it's a fairly short run. Yeah, and I think um, they could pick this up better. If you're a moviegoer, you could pick this series up better from the movie character than, say, Iron Man or Thor or Cap, because they're going, they're more in the Marvel Universe, they've got different villains and things they're fighting where... All you need to know what you learn from the movies is he can shoot a bow and arrow well and he's part of shit. He's, he's trained at what he does and that's enough for you to, to read this series apart from a few points. Oh yeah, as opposed to you know Iron Man and Thor or Captain America. When those guys first got solo titles, you're looking at Captain America in 1941, which doesn't fit in the movie continuity at all and barely feels like the character because the tone of the books have changed so much. Or you're going to his Silver Age series and for Cap, Thor, and Iron Man, all three of them, they started in anthology titles. So if you read the first issue that's named after them, it's not an issue one, so it's going to feel like an awkward starting place with the exception of Iron Man. But even Iron Man issue one was picking up from the Tales of Suspense storylines that were going on. And also, even if you pick up the current titles, Captain America's an old man has been replaced by Falcon, and Thor's currently a woman, so you couldn't pick them issues up and get the movie characters. Yeah. So there's a lot to do. So this is this is certainly worth tracking down, but it's one that you need to be tracking down because someone said, hey, track this down. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I'm one of those people who's telling you right now, track this down. I've recommended this to a few friends that don't read comic books because it is a series that can be picked up and it is worth reading. Yeah. And it's there's not really any fantastical elements here. You're not, you know, some people don't like comics because no, they don't like characters who can fly because they find them un unrealistic or the sci-fi or the fantasy elements just don't appeal to them. You could go out there and film an accurate adaptation of this entire series and not pay a cent for CGI. I think the hardest thing would be the trick arrows, but 
there's only one issue where a trick arrow is fired. Yeah, and even the, the trick part of it is best kept off screen and off panel here, right? That's why like what you need there is a trick arrow that leaves the panel and then at some point returns. Yeah. It's easy enough to have prop guys rigged up to make that happen. This I can't imagine you would make this without CGI these days, but you could do it with 100% physical effects. There is a lot of um, thought put into realism. Like I know in a podcast I heard David Arjar and Matt Fraction went through his injuries in issue one and every plaster and bandage on him. If you look back, supposedly you can find where he was hit in the nose or cut on the arm. Yeah, that would not surprise me in the least with those two. Yeah, I know David Arjar is a sucker for detail being stuck in a queue for him to um, get a sketch from him. So uh, before we break, did you have any closing thoughts on this issue or this story arc? It's a good story, and I don't know if it is the greatest, but I think it is something that if you haven't read, I think everyone could and should read. Yeah, I would agree. This is this is a, a great story on that whole... We talked about the three elements many times of what can land things on the list. The entertainment value of this is so great, it'll be a long time before it gets bumped completely off the list of this type, although it may slide up or down a few places depending on what else is on the market at the time it gets published. So, Mark, I'd like to thank you for joining us for this. Yeah, thanks for having me. And for those of you who are reading along at home, next week's podcast is about giant-sized X-Men number one, which has been reprinted in Special Edition X-Men number one, Marvel Masterworks, The Uncanny X-Men volume one, Marvel Milestone Edition, giant-sized X-Men number one, all-new, all-different X-Men Masterworks volume one, X-Men Rarities number one, Essential X-Men volume one, Marvel Collectible Classics X-Men number 5, 100 Greatest Marvels of All Time number 7, Giant-Sized Marvel Trade Paperback from 2005, Uncanny X-Men Omnibus hardcover from 2006, and Wolverine and the X-Men Magazine number 2 from 2009, in addition to Comixology and Marvel Digital Unlimited and the Git Corp Uncanny X-Men DVD-ROMs. So please feel free to rate this show and anything else you listen to on iTunes or Stitcher or Check out the Bureau 42 Master Audio feed to hear samples of some of our other podcasts and see if you want to listen to some or all of them in addition to this one. And thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.